where do the roots of comics stand in regards to other forms of media? Where do the roots of comics stand in regards to other media? Um, well, the the, uh, the common line, actually, which Kim, uh, Kim Deitch was in our class yesterday at SVA and was repeating this the same line as the way I kind of conceive it, that the, the um, at least in America, you know, there's the kind of the turn of the century, roughly, contain, roughly contemporaneous development, if not uh, invention, um, at the same time around, you know, film, uh, short after photography, radio, all this stuff, um, came around about the same time. And um, the big, the thing that sets comics apart, lamentably, from all these other media, is that it just uh, had arrested development, in, uh, in, in my opinion, and a lot of people's, and sort of, and the, the, I think the two reasons for that are just the general commerce that it was not, it was, you know, used to sell newspapers at first in the U.S., and uh, the, the, you know, and then even when stuff did start to happen, like the EC comics and whatever, um, the, uh, the, the Wortham trials and the Comics Authority kind of scuppered any, any, uh, any hope of it continuing to develop and, you know, at least some of the mature stuff that, you know, someone like Harvey Kurtzman and Bernie Krigstein and people like that were, were working on at that time. Um, so, uh, and for me as an artist, what, you know, the, the, the real shame of that is that there's never been, uh, uh, an avant-garde in comics, at least not until you know sometime in this you know basically the undergrounds count as the first sort of under you know avant-garde I think, mm-hmm. um, and that you know and that points out like a something unusual about I think about the that typical line about it being about uh, comics marketed to kids and um, and especially the the Wortham stuff um, is that you know this. Surrealists and a lot of other artists adopted all kinds of other media, including film. Um, you know, about dating back to the twenties. You know, the Dada uh, artists as well. Um, and often, I find it a shame and a little bit surprising that n- none of them ever actually made comic strips. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, everybody knows that you know Picasso read Crazy Cat and uh, um, you know Nick Bertozzi has these great fanciful but very plausible um, you know ideas about Picasso having developed cubism after reading uh, uh, like Mutt and Jeff and Popeye comic you know it's a very appealing notion so um, wouldn't Feininger work in that aspect you're talking about as far as yeah but Feininger's yeah I mean he's an odd case I mean he's one of the very few that um, was coming out of the fine art world did a strip for a while and then went back to the fine art world but um, I'm not sure that he really considered those two things on a, on a par with each other. Um, I'm not sure if there's any, you know, I've never read any account of what his feelings were about his painting versus the, the comic strips that he did. Um, certainly the art world doesn't accept it as part of the, his art, particularly at least until like, you know, the Masters of, Masters of American Comics show and stuff like that. Um, How I'm not do sure what else to add there. Huh? I was just saying I'm not sure what else to add there. <laughs> it's okay. Um, how do comics work? Um, comics to me are basically uh, a narrative language. Um, 
Although I agree with like the if you you know get the hardcore, you're trying to be really semantic about it and and nail down what comics are the way Scott McCloud has tried to do, um, for instance. Uh, you know I, I do think that text is not essential. There's there are so many good wordless and very successful wordless comics um, out there that that uh, text is not essential. Although it, it it's you know in fact a part of you know ninety percent of comics that are out there. Um, but uh, but I guess more importantly, I think comics read like language more than when you read a comic. It's like you're reading. Uh, it's closer to reading like a short story than to say studying a painting, um, because you need to. You're you're looking at a series of basically linear information. At least the panels and the pages run in a sequence. A given panel can be very pictorial and very plastic. Um, and in reading an individual panel, there's a certain amount of circuitousness then. But even with the panel, um, and I would argue even if there's no word balloons there, you still tend to scan it in the left to right, top to bottom, text sort of way. Um, and, and regardless, once you're on to the next panel, you're starting to read a series of uh, symbols you know, that, are draw that can be drawings, that can be text. Um, which, when combined in sequence with the ones that, that follow it, slowly build a kind of narrative. They build narrative uh, sentences, if you will. Um, and that's very different from just looking at a drawing, where you're, you just sort of linger on it and your eye kind of wanders in, in uh, you know, varying circuits. And there's no particular you know, entry or exit point um, that you're expected to follow. Um, and I, th I think that's why, in uh, especially you know, in recent years, and like Chris Ware, I think would be a big proponent of this. But also in mini comics and art, you know, artists who draw in a very simple, unadorned style, uh, like you know, the extreme being Matt Fazell doing six figures. But also think about John Porcellino um, or David Mazzucchelli, who we were just talking about the way his you know the more elaborate, illustrative style of his Marvel work has kind of stripped down to a much more graphic. Um, you know, designy style. Um, very simple. Work. Symbol yeah, very simple like. Yeah, I think he's very much thinking in the same way that, um, that the drawing, uh, although it undeniably has, uh, you know, meaning within comics, it's not, it's not the primary, you know, carrier of what comics are. Um, it's the sequence, not sequences like, uh, is a kind of syntax. What were the strengths of, Excuse me. Uh, what were the strengths of early uh, comics, and what were some weaknesses? Early comics. Can you narrow that down a little bit? Um, the kind of the collective acceptance. Sort of like uh, up until the undergrounds, or. Well, actually, maybe I'll ask a question before that. Do you okay. differentiate between forms like editorial comic strips and comic books? Um. Yeah, to, to varying degrees. I mean, I certainly uh, distinguish editorial cartoons and, and basically single-panel gags from uh, any kind of strip cartooning. You know, from a daily strip up to a graphic novel, I consider that to be a uh, of a piece, at least a very closely related form of storytelling. You know, and it's like from uh, I've been reading this um, this book by. Um, Felix Fénéon called Novels in Three Lines, 
Um, there's a thing that he wrote in the in the early uh, in the twenties, I think. They were done in written in the newspaper, and they're they're almost like Twitter, you know, <laughs> they're like little tweets. And he, they're little news items, but they often have this kind of encapsulates like an entire novel's worth of nuance and character into like three very brief lines. That there are always stories about you know adultery and murder and patricide and drunken people doing crazy things. Um, so, in other words. You know that that's equivalent. That, that would might be like the literary equivalent of a daily strip. You know, he, he actually serialized them in a newspaper in France, um, but it clearly you know works along the same lines as a short story in a novel. Um, and like a gag cartoon panel or a political cartoon uh, are different because again they don't have that that um, or as much of that linguistic component where you're not reading stuff in a sequence. You've got a single sometimes just a single image to uh, you know, laugh at or think about, um, and maybe the caption that creates a kind of juxtaposition. Um, but that in itself is, is not, to me, is not comics, um, you know, functionally. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sort of, I'm not, uh, personally, I'm not like, I don't have any interest in sort of defining it that way, and like I'm, I have no problem with people including things like, uh, you know, single panel like the the Far Side or whatever is in the world of comics. Um, but when it comes down to it, I don't, I don't really, uh, in practice, I don't really think of them the same way. That's great. Um, everyone has had a completely different answer for that. Uh-huh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I think you and Scott are the only uh, ones of the dissension. Um, so, Emmett, what... The question asked those strengths of early comics and weaknesses. What do you uh-huh. see as an early form of comics? Maybe we can start out with that. Well, um, the earliest form of comics to me is uh, uh, the work of Rudolf Tupper, the, uh, the Swiss artist, um, who did these uh, kind of self-published little booklets. Have you seen them, any of his stuff? Yeah. Some of it was in the McSweeney's book and everything. Um, you know, I really, I, I agree with people who argue that he's kind of the first true cartoonist. Um, although even then, there are, you know, people like uh, Donald Kunzel, the historian, and, uh, and other people who really like, you know, the, the, the crate diggers of the, you know, old comics world. Mm-hmm. They're like the broadsheets. Through, uh, through old broadsheets and newspapers, um, you know, have found other contemporary, you know, basically contemporary examples of sequential narrative, you know, with or without um, dialogue and not purely relying on, on captions either. Um, so to me, that's the earliest form of comics. Um, again, something like uh, um, the Rake's Progress, this, you know, uh, other kinds of broadsheet popular literature. They're a related form, but um, you know, in terms of what, like as an artist, when I look for in, for influence, that's you know, the stuff that directly affects the way that I tell stories. Um, you know, I'm going to get more out of looking at Topper than um, Goya's Disasters of War, for example. What would you follow Topper up with? Because, I mean, that's, that is the early example. Um, it, in a lot of ways, it's isolated from everything else. Yeah, in I mean, that, I have... Uh, as in, like, not being a public media as much. Right, and it didn't really catch on. I mean, you know, whatever. It's popular enough to have bootlegs made around the world. But, um, but it didn't... It didn't spawn a, a movement, um, and and that's where I think like the argument about American comics being the origin of comics has uh, 
if not validity, I think that's why it, that, that's what explains why the, the popularity of the yellow kid in particular sort of heralds the, the kind of solidification of, of comics as a distinct medium that's different from just you know illustrated gags and little sequences of uh, you know lists of funny things like funny things a uh, uh, funny things a barrister does after work you know that you'd see in Punch or whatever. Um, and um, uh, so it's that that early, that late late uh, you know 1890s American stuff. Um, of course, not the Yellow Kid, which isn't actually a, a strip, but certainly the um, Buster Brown stuff that Outcall followed that with. I do think he did some Yellow Strip, Yellow Kid comics later on. Um, Frederick Opper, I think, is a really overlooked uh, early master of the form, and. Um, I'm glad to see, I think it's not out yet, but apparently NBM's doing out, putting out a collection of his Happy Hooligan comics. Um, uh, do you know a guy named John Ronan who writes in the comics journal a lot, or used to at least, and is an academic working on a uh, PhD down in Gainesville, and he's writing about you know 19th century, basically comics before comics are supposed to have been invented, and he's found tons of examples um, um, from before The Yellow Kid. Um, but he also has a, a large collection of uh, kind of lost Frederick Opper stuff. Um, Happy Hooligan, um, her name was Maude, uh, Alphonse and Gaston, um, who I believe might be a, a model for uh, Heckle and Jekyll, the old uh, Crow cartoons, I don't know if you remember those. But, mm-hmm. um, so uh, so that, that's the stuff, I think, of the earliest comics, that uh, that era of uh, uh, Opper... Uh, Dirks McKay starting to get into it, um, and you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not really a historian, so I don't have sort of in my my general sense of it is like the early comic strips up until uh, maybe the the 30s or so, when like when like Roy Crane comes along, and you start to have action comics, and pretty soon you have Milk Kniff, and that becomes more of a dominant mode than the the sort of domestic comedy. Um, Superhero, then the comic books start coming in. Um, and that sort of marks a new direction. Um, EC and uh, the uh, the Wortham trials. What do you see from those earlier ones that made them strong, and and why they caught on? Mm-hmm. Um, I see. Uh, as, as, especially as as an artist yourself, like right. As, a, as an artist, I just see uh, well a lot of things. I see. Uh, more than anything, just uh, a constant formal invention, you know, of, of a bunch of uh, um, often very talented draftsmen. I mean, um, Opera, again, was, you know, better known in his time as a, as a political um, illustrator. You know, he did satires and illustrated books and things like that. Uh, and McKay, of course, also did that. And, and these guys were um, pretty much making this stuff up as they went along and uh, coming up with new really interesting formal ways of telling stories. This, this is, you know, and it's not always one artist. It's like, if you look at a bunch of different strips from that period, you'll see people doing interesting things with, uh, with page layout. Um, Little Demon's Slumberland, obviously, uh, took great advantage of the, the massive page format and being able to distort panels. And, uh, uh, the, you know, the, I, I think of the model of the time being uh, vaudeville theater, 
Um, and again, a lot of those guys were involved with that, like, mm -hmm. like Windsor McKay. Um, so you get these little, like Mutt and Jeff or um, Thimble Theater, you get these little box box panels that are almost like little proscenium stages, and you know, often the characters are drawn full figure. Um, and even there, though, they, they you know, it's, it's different from theater because, of course, it's not a live, continuous experience, and they're learning about them intuitively understanding breakdown um, and how to take a, a sequence of events and break them into, you know, four, six, eight panels, or you know, maybe a Sunday page, and uh, narrate the series of events and give them motion. You know, and somewhere along the line, they're like, oh, I'll use little stars to express pain and little, you know, lines that go in circles to express motion, you know, and all of a sudden the, this whole uh, vocabulary of emanata kind of, kind of arises um, almost spontaneously around that time. You know, they start playing around with uh, uh, word balloons, um, and uh, uh, you need to fact check this, but I believe uh, Opera is the first one to have used word balloons extensively I'll um, have in to comics. Check that comic um, art article. Yeah. But um, so I, you know, I just love seeing that, and I, I love seeing the uh, uh, the um, the kind of rigor of the storytelling. You know, like gags from day to day and, and week to week um, that always have this great you know timing to them. Um, often the writing is really good. I mean, Windsor McKay is almost like a running joke that he's one of the worst. If, if he's one of the great draftsmen of comics, <laughs> um, he's also one of the worst letterers of all time. Um, but it's, but his his actual writing, especially his dialogue, is hilarious. Just that he captures this uh, voice, this kind of fussy, nervous, uh, you know, turn of the century bourgeois American um, voice. The whole you know pishaw and muttering to themselves and stuff. It's really priceless and almost reads like a Samuel Beckett character sometimes. Was there a central use for comics at a certain point? A central use? Yeah. Um, I mean, not that I think anyone kind of decided from, from on high that it was, that's what they were there for. I mean, uh, uh, historically, the the, the you know, yellow journalism and, and the competition between uh, Hearst and Pulitzer clearly had uh, a, a huge influence on why comics became popular and why they developed the way they did in the newspaper format. Um, but even then, I don't think the Pulitzers, you know, any of the, the, these editors were like, well, comics are something we're going to create to supplement that. Like, how can we move these papers? Like, wow, this yellow kid seems popular. Let's put him on the front, on the front page, you know? Um, uh, so no, I don't think there ever was a, a, a one purpose that they that they were meant to serve. If anything, it was the other way around that people didn't take advantage of how many things comics could do. And it was more through a sort of, uh, to my mind, more of a kind of um, uh, uh, what's the word? You know, kind of a entropy or just you know lack of initiative. And so, you know, sort of comics fell into this groove, especially once the books started coming out, of um, being something for, for young kids and, and the illiterate, you know, the sort of, like, pulpy entertainment. Well, a lot of it, which is really great stuff, but it, but it also kind of, like, ghetto, you know, sort of somehow ghettoized itself, both the readers and the artists. It's sort of a unconscious 
thing had happened, I think, um, in many ways, that, uh, you know, these are, like, like I said, like the, the Surrealists, there's no reason I sh they wouldn't have done wonderful comics. I mean, Max Ernst's uh, uh, collage novel that he did around that time, you know, so to do a similar thing with, like, with uh, comics would have made sense. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, no one ever did. You know, I, think that, I don't think there's any answer to that, but, uh, but I think it's, it's more the opposite of your question. It's not so much as what were comics for. It's like why didn't comic? Why didn't people see comics as being you know more than just what they were were being used for in in, in everyday facts? Well, the follow-up then for me is pretty obvious. Is when did you see that point of when comics had a new use, or people really were more dynamic with the medium? Um. I think there it's a couple of uh well a number of um, small steps and 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 uh attempts here and there um in america i mean from the beginning you know there there were uh in the in the, new, in the great newspaper cartoonists on the one hand they didn't have um pretense to be you know graphic novelists and get themselves published in in the in the new yorker or um you know the New Yorker of uh, ten years before it started being published, but um, but it's clear that looking at George Harriman's Crazy Cat, for example, it, this is a major work of art in that he he was fully dedicated to what he was doing, and he was never like you can never call Harriman a hack. I mean, he's about the least <laughs> hacky popular artist ever. You know, this is a guy who had this kind of obsessive uh, this this obsessive idea of. The characters you wanted to draw, and basically the story you wanted to tell, and he told you know over and over again, like that based that one scenario, the three characters and and the you know the cast of of uh, side characters, and um, he was just determined to like just do that over and over again, um, almost like as a kind of calling, and uh, I don't think yeah I just don't think he really thought about it uh, in terms of like ambition or kicking it up a notch or what comics should be or shouldn't be, uh, he he was just an artist in a very uh, natural sort of way. Um, so, and I think it's important to make that distinction that it's, there, you know, there are artists that just do what they do, and um, in retrospect, if not contemporarily, you know, people see the artistry and what they're doing. Um, and that's a little bit different from, I think, what, what we're talking about here, which is like, w at what point did people say, all right, this, this medium isn't developing the way it should be, or it could be doing more, let's try and push the boundaries a bit. Um, and the first people to do that in the U.S., I think, are, are probably the EC gang on Harvey Kurtzman in particular, um, uh, Bernie Krigstein, uh, also being you know a well-documented example of someone who is really trying to uh, um, realize some some potential he saw in, in how stories could be told visually. You know, even if the material is still pretty pulpy. Um, and all that stuff. Um, actually, I made one admission. I mean, obviously, Will Eisner probably mm -hmm. you know, predates the EC guys by 10 years or so with the spirit. And he was, you know, from the beginning, was very much arguing that there could be, uh, you know, if not literature at first, and a, and a more, then at least a more respectable and, and rigorous form of popular entertainment. Um, and uh, then the undergrounds, you know. Uh, Kim Deitch was talking about that a lot yesterday in class, and um, 
really, you know, it's interesting from, you know, from a guy who's basically a contemporary and was publishing comics in the East Village Other, um, you know, he left no doubt that, that all those guys knew, like, we're really advancing this medium here. And he kind of, you know, he's like, well, you know, people looked at it and were like, well, yeah, you just, you're drawing the same comics and you're just adding a lot of sex. And he's like, that's like a, that's a really superficial reaction. I mean, the, the sex, sure, that was that was part of the the period they were living in, um, but none of them took it like that uh, offhandedly. Like, oh, let's just you know, be like sort of the cherry pop tart thing. Let's just draw Archies and give them boners, you know. Yeah. Um, but they really, even if they were talking about drugs and sex, they were doing it because you know they believed in this medium and, and really felt that it could speak about more than than what it ever had before. And he also basically uh, and, and claimed that everyone of his peers attributed, attributed it pretty much solely to Crumb. Yeah. And he was saying that if he hadn't met Robert Crumb and, and seen his work, he's not sure that he would have had the the, uh, the vision and, and the uh, the wherewithal to you know to, to raise the, the knots quite as much as Crumb did on everyone else. Kim is very blunt about the importance of Crumb. Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. he will not in any way step down from that. Yeah, yeah, important to be recognized when a lot of times you find people don't really talk about their contemporaries at such a high right. standard that he places sure. Crumb. Um, and you know, I should point out we're only talking about the U.S. here. I mean, uh, meanwhile, in uh, uh, in Europe, um, there's a. I think you know, I think of Hergé being a, a little bit like Harriman, although possibly more certainly over time more and more self aware of himself as. An artist and as like a figure in culture at large, but I think the early Tintin books, you know, he just he wanted to do the best stories he could and and just really you know pay attention to the craft and and, and the formal elements and make the best uh, stories for for young readers that he could make. Um, and it was only with the accumulation of time and I think the 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 notice that he got. That I think towards the end of his career, you know, he's uh, apparently was very aware of the fact that he was. You know, considered an artist, and, and basically, you know, acknowledged it. It's like, yeah, what I'm doing is, you know, literature of, of some sort. Um, and uh, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not like deeply familiar with all all the various like little movements like that there. You know, in France, that would have moved things forward. Um, but certainly, the undergrounds in the U.S. influenced. Uh, you know, Mobius and all these guys over in the 70s in France to start uh, the magazine Pilote and uh, Metal Hulon, which became heavy metal in the U.S., um, which is very different from the American underground. You know, it's still sort of high fantasy, but with, you know, elements of uh, sex and violence and political satire that hadn't just hadn't been in, in the earlier French comics for the most part. And characters like Blueberry and... Uh, and um, right, yeah, more conflicted, uh, Corto Maltese and stuff like that. Uh, and then, you know, the manga in, in Japan at the same time, uh, you know, Tezuka from the beginning was, again, one of these guys who uh, um, pretty early on, uh, I think, uh, in, maybe in a sort of Will Eisner kind of way, it was like, you know, comics are uh, um, a form of popular high art. You know, he clearly from very early on was aiming for more than just street entertainment. Um, and... Uh, so certainly, I mean, the 60s, sort of late 50s, late 60s, you know, mimicking world, you know, global culture as a whole, it's like you see a huge leap forward and a lot of people thinking about stuff um, across, uh, across the globe. Um, 
and you know, I think that probably uh, the, the combination of the sort of one-two punch of the EC Comics, uh, along with with Eisner, followed by you know, roughly ten years later, the, uh, the underground movement, kind of started the gears in motion. And since then, it's it's become all the more you know, every more frequent. They're like every few years, and now it seems like every you know, couple of months, there's some new artist coming up. It's like you know, <laughs> pushing the medium in some new direction. So. Uh, now it's like it's well underway. It's like the the, the uh, gears are, are are churning already. I think now we're seeing and, uh, changes at a unbelievable pace. Right. Especially with new kids like Dash Shaw and other folks. Doing, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um. I don't know. If, like this may not be of your interest. Um, the two last questions, kind of looking at um, comics within other media aspects. Um, mm-hmm. One of the questions makes people groan, but that's okay. I ask them anyways. Um, okay. the, I'll ask the first one. Uh, where does Wortham's studies on juvenile delinquency belong in the development of the media? Um, in terms of how it's... Uh Looked upon now, or just uh, I'm not sure. I how how did it affect comics as a medium? Its growth, its not growth. <clears throat> did it have an effect? Um, I, I I think it pretty definitely did. I mean, you know, I think the uh, um, in the EC comics at the very least. I'm not sure that like they were like Marvel and DC were um, you know ready to start doing graphic novels and got squelched by uh, by Frederick Wortham. But I do think that, you know, among all of the um, sensationalism and, and, you know, violence and gore that, that was occurring in Tales from the Crypt and all these DC comics, there were, you know, there were stabs at stuff of something that was that was much deeper than what we've seen before. I mean, um, to name two examples, Craigstein's uh, uh, Master Race mm-hmm. and um, uh, Kurtzman's uh, Corpse on the Imgen. Are, are two stories that you know are published in the, in the very same publications that led to, you know, led Wortham to write his book and, and eventually to the trials and, and the Comics Code Authority. And these are uh, they're popular entertainment, but they're extremely rich works, you know, that are that function uh, in, at a literary level of you know visual themes and motifs and uh, a really tight narrative structure and you know sort of interweaving of uh, text and. and Imagery and and uh, repetition and variation and the page layouts and all kinds of stuff. Um, and I think that kind of cartooning um, didn't stop entirely. Although I think you know Krigstein faded out of cartooning pretty quick after all of that. I don't know if that's a directly result of uh, Wortham or not. Um, so it's maybe not quantifiable, but uh, to, to my mind, it definitely had a, a pretty uh, damaging effect on comics as a whole, and especially on on that little bud of you know artists who are starting to to look for more mature themes. Um, basically, which basically you can't you can't just have the mature, ready for Reader's Digest themes without the sex and violence. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, sort of sort of part and parcel, and it's very hard to uh, to separate those out. You know, you might get a very gentle artist who just produces stuff for the masses that's also at a high literary level, but more likely you're going to end up with, you know, 
Robert Crumb and you know people doing stuff that's that's new and rich, but is also a little bit dangerous. You know, I didn't groan then. <laughs> that wasn't the groaning question. <laughs> okay, all right. So let's do the groaner then. The groaner, and, and this may not um, be applicable to you at all. Um, is when looking at the Muhammad comics controversy, is that an isolated incident, or does it hold a place in the greater scope of the medium? Um, well, it's uh, it, it applies to the medium as it applies to, to to world you know world culture as a whole, and especially visual culture. You know, again, those were political cartoons and not comic strips. Um, sorry, I'm sipping my espresso. <laughs> but um, but also, it, it was a matter of uh, the issue was not their comics. The issue was the the, the depiction of uh, Muhammad and and you know uh, and the, the extreme uh, lack of respect it showed. Um, there was a smaller um, example I heard recently. I mean, it didn't lead to uh, you know worldwide condemnation, but it was like a it was just like a it was a band. And they, they come up with some really stupid name for themselves that was like, um, you know, I'm going to rape Muhammad or something like that. And you know, they were going on their first tour, and their manager was like, they got out in the media, and, you know, next thing you know, they were like, you know, the rock and rollers all of a sudden. But, you know, there's just, uh, uh, so, I mean, that's which is a long way of saying, no, I don't think it particularly um, directly relates to, uh, to what I'm doing in, in comics, you know, yeah. more than it does to, to just, like I said, just you know the, the global situation we're in, you know, and the fact that I'm working in a visual medium. Mm -hmm. 